Good morning, church. I'm Ryan Lund, and today we'll be reading from Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, which can be found on page 985 in the Pew Bible. Hey, it is good to see everybody. Let me put this back here for... I'm going to put it back here and you can fix it later. All right. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Chris. Uh, Glad you guys are here. Let me just pray for us one more time, and then we'll look at this passage together. Uh, Let me ask for God's help. Jesus, we come to you now. Uh, We've all had uh, not just different mornings, but different weeks. Some things have been amazing, and all of that to you. We ask now that you would use your word to speak to us in ways that are corrective, that draw us to you that heal us, um, that, that help us move forward, and that give us a view of who you are and what you're like, primarily around this idea of welcoming outsiders. I just prayed this morning that we could sit in the reality that everybody is outside of your grace on their own. No one can merit salvation or love. No one deserves your grace. All of us have open, receptive hands. So those who've known you for 60 years, would you remind them afresh that they once were outsiders? For those who are outsiders now, who wonder if there's hope, would you draw them to yourself? And would you, would you speak to us? We, we welcome you, Holy Spirit. Move and, and work in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, if you are new with us or uh, have been gone for a little bit, just by way of hospitality, let me kind of tell you where we are in this series. This is the last week of a seven-week series on transformation, about how change really happens and what God's actually doing to draw us to himself and not just give us more information to follow or give us rules to obey, but actually literally change us from the inside out. That's the message of Christianity. And so we've been walking through Colossians chapter 3 into now chapter 4 for a number of weeks, just kind of circling around these ideas of how are we changed, um, what do we do to engage in that change, how do we live out this change. And I've heard two things this week that I think both are true and they're kind of competing. Somebody loved me enough to say, hey man, you're actually more clear than you think you are, so don't do such long introductions. (laughs) Which I think he meant it as a compliment. I heard both sides. I heard like the corrective and the compliment. I also was with a guy and he said, hey, I've been there every week. I've been in the membership class. I've been to the, the newcomer thing. I just now understand that diagram that you've been using like this last week. So I feel a little torn to be fast and to linger for a little bit just to help things actually be explained. Um, and actually, do we have that diagram, Caleb? I didn't ask for it, but bam, way to go. Thanks, man. Okay. So if you haven't been here, we've used this as a way to summarize Colossians 3, 1 to 4, 6. I actually wrote a paragraph so I can be concise. Let me read to you my concise introduction. Here it is. This passage starts by naming the process by which transformation happens. The text gives us three parts. First, change happens because of what Christ has done. This gives us a gospel identity. That's verses 3, 1 to 4. And there's a call to repentance next. Think about repentance as turning away from the things that you used to build your identity on or that you used to protect your identity with. That's Colossians 3, verses 5 to 11. And it's followed by a call to put on positive redemptive patterns. If repentance is turning away from something, then then what we do when we turn to something is pursue a life in God. That's Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Next, the passage names several practices 
that we engage with that help us be transformed. We've talked about being in God's word and worship and prayer and living in community. And finally, the passage makes application to the places where we live our lives. We've looked at personal relationships, marriage and family, friendships. We've talked about social and vocational settings, where our jobs and how we engage in society. And then our relationships with those who don't yet know Jesus is our focus for this morning, which is what this passage calls the outside world. Time. Boom. There it is. There's a concise introduction. That's kind of what we've been talking about. A couple of things about that that we've been saying over and over again. Jesus came to change us. Our church is focused on the good news and the person of Jesus. There's no change apart from him. And we want to be the kind of community that's honest about our brokenness, so much so that repentance is a way of life. That there's an honesty to our need that we welcome people who are in process because we understand ourselves to be in process. It's not as if anybody in the room has arrived. All of us need to repent. Remember, this passage on repentance is written to Christians. To put to death and to take off the things of the flesh is an ongoing thing. Embracing that makes us a really honest community where wherever you are, you find space for yourself here to hear the grace and good news of God. We also said it's not just being honest, but aggressively moving towards holiness because sin is death, the Bible says. It's not just about being like a better, cleaner version of yourself. It's about freedom and liberation. So honesty begets a move away from sin and brokenness so that we can actually engage in the life that God calls us to. Christianity is not primarily a religion away from something, but to something. Actually, to someone, to, to Jesus, and to following him in the life that he calls us to. So that's where we've been as uh, a church last couple of weeks. And we've said there's some real simple practices and, and there's some places that we're trying to live these out. So when I've been beating this drum of it's meant to be lived outside this room. Every week I've tried to say this passage is helping us understand that Christianity is not primarily something that happens inside these walls. It happens out in the wild where you actually live your life. And, and we come then to this section today on engaging with those who don't yet know Jesus, which gives us a chance to remember those who've been walking with Christ for a while, what it was like not to believe. Gives us a chance to welcome those who are searching and seeking and wondering, is there hope for you? What about your past and what about the uncertainty of your future? Is there actually a hope? This passage gives you a lot of hope. And what I've tried to do in these next or these last couple of weeks is kind of engage this passage in such a way that it just becomes kind of part of us. And I realize that's going to be like a decade worth of like revisiting this and reviewing this. But because it is a summary of the Christian life, I hope it becomes something that you are really familiar with, whether or not you can draw a diagram, whether or not you can quote anything from this passage. I listened to a podcast on leadership from a woman named Joe Saxton, and she talked about leaders getting to a place where they have what she called unconscious competence. And it was a section on mentoring, at least like get around young leaders and just kind of share their stuff you know that you don't know you know that you could just share with them and an unconscious competence. And I thought about that idea when it comes to this passage. What if this passage became reflexive for us? Where you didn't have to quote it, it was just kind of part of how you saw the world and saw God, that there was an unconscious competence in these things and who God is and what he calls you to and what it means to to live that out in your in your real life so the goal then is not to quote something but to live into it and we come then to the section on outsiders and I want to pull the things we've been 
talking about. Like this idea that it's actually meant to be a process that's transforming our real life. And in the last couple of sections, what we've seen is the gospel flips upside down the power structures of the day. If you weren't with us, we talked about marriage. And there's a call in verse 18 of chapter 3 for wives to submit to their husbands. And it then says to those who are empower husbands to, to love their wives and don't be harsh. And we spent a lot of time just unpacking that, which is initially pretty offensive. But if you sit in the text, you realize it's an invitation to both husbands and wives to flourishing. And actually what happens is the one who's in the lower social position is, is elevated. Same thing when we come to slaves and masters, which again is another kind of uh, hard, kind of tangled up, jagged passage for us to apply. But, but if you just can engage it for a moment to have slaves and masters in the same room is about equality and inclusion and welcome. And so those same themes then play into this last section of where we live our life out with the outside world. It's about God welcoming those who are on the outside. I don't know how you think about outsiders, those who are different than you, and you can do outsiders in any number of categories. We actually live in a really polarized world that sells us concepts and ideas based on the idea that we're afraid of those who are different than us. That we look at people who hold a different position and we get angry, or we want to avoid them, or we get in places where they make us really anxious. And what this text says is rather than pushing away from those on the outside, we should answer and draw close and come near. Have you experienced that where like your social them, there's something about them that you should be suspicious of? And you look at history, we just have done this over and over and over again. Those who are different than us, we often enslave. Those who are different than us, we often persecute. Those who are different than us, we often imprison. Those who are different than us, we often push away and oppress, right? Which makes sense of some of these passages that we've actually been engaging with. The Christian theme of engaging the outsider runs from the top to the bottom all the way to the spaces where what we see now in this text is far from pushing outsiders away, what God came to do is to welcome outsiders in. So, so these themes of letting this transformation play out into your real life is a theme for today, and this idea of engaging those who are kind of in that upside-down position. Those who maybe you find yourselves afraid of, those who maybe you find yourself wanting to avoid, those who you don't understand, to hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus came for those people. And that might be you. You, may, you might be those people in someone else's world. In fact, to someone else, you are an outsider. And the good news of the gospel is that God came for all of us, came to welcome all of us to come and be, and be with him, that God himself came into our world to make a way for outsiders to come in. That theme feels really important. And just to name the idea that we normally resist the welcome of outsiders helps us open our hands just a little bit, to think about people a little bit differently, to see them as eternal beings, not ideologies or backgrounds or even religions or cultures, but to see them as people made in the image of God who desperately need to hear the good news of a God who comes to outsiders. And I just want to acknowledge now, if you're in the room and you're like, hey, I'm not a follower of Jesus, this whole talk already feels really bizarre to me. I just want to say I get it. Like to be in a room where Christians are being instructed on how to engage with the outside world, and you may find yourself in that spot where you're outside Christianity wondering, is there even hope? It just kind of feels a little bit weird. I just want to acknowledge that. And maybe if I could set you at ease a little bit, what you're going to hear this morning is not techniques and strategies and trick questions to trap people and ways to engage them in such a way they're forced to make a decision. What you're going to hear is the heart of God to go 
towards those who desperately need to hear the good news, which if that's you, I want you to hear the good news this morning. I realize it's kind of strange to kind of hear a talk to uh, Christians about how to engage outsiders if you are on the outside, but, but I want you to actually feel welcome because there won't be like tricks and tips. I actually was laughing this week thinking about some of my early like jobs. Uh, I worked at Chuck E. Cheese, which was fascinating, and lots of moral character building that happens inside a mouse costume. That, that happened when I was in high school. And then when I was in college, in the breaks between semesters, you just have a short little window there, so it would find just kind of random jobs. And one winter break, I found myself uh, selling stuff at a kiosk in a mall. So if you can go now to December 14th, 15th, you're not sure what to buy, you're walking down the aisles of the mall, and there's all these like seasonal little booths there in the mall. Well, in 1996, you might have encountered a very handsome young man dressed in khakis and athletic shoes and a white polo because we were selling self-activating therapeutic heat packs and needed to dress like we were personal trainers, which is how every trainer dressed in the 90s, I think. So, so here I am, I'm 19, 20 years old, khakis, athletic shoes, white polo, selling self-activated heat packs. Hey, and I was actually pretty good at it. So, so it started with this small little pack like this, and there's a little disc inside. I still do this. They don't know how it happened. But something would happen when you pop this disc, it created a reaction. And this saline solution, I can still hear the cell switch in my head. The saline solution inside the pack begins to activate. And the, the pack instantly heats up to 160 degrees, which is perfect for whatever therapy you, you might actually need. So, so we would stand by the cart and have this little pack. And there was a spin move you would do. So if you saw them coming this way, you'd have your back to the cart and you would turn into them kind of block their traffic and go, oh, have you seen this yet? And if you did it well, you would actually put it in their hand, and when they gripped it, they would activate that little disc. And it was like, sweet, because now this thing moves, and it's sort of like a clouded color, and it gets hot all of a sudden. And then you would leave it in their hand if you were good at it, and go, hey, do you ever have aches and pains? <laughs> we don't just have this little hand warmer, which you could use for hunting and fishing and all kinds of things if you have arthritis. But we actually have some larger ones. Come with me this way. You leave this thing in their hand. They're just standing in the mall like with this little pack. So they have to follow you over to the cart. They come over to the cart. And as you kind of talk through this, you talk about all the options and all the needs and how you understand their pain. If you can get this thing on the back of their shoulders, it was an instant 60 bucks. You could sell them this thing if they would, if they would feel it. But you would get them over there. And the best thing to do was to kind of lean softly on the cart, lower your voice just a little bit. So they, so they had to come close a little bit. And as they're coming close, you just begin to connect with all their therapeutic needs and tell them you have a size for every need that they, that they might have. But one time I was like in the zone, man. I'd like, I'm, I'm selling like crazy all day long. And I get to the spot where my elbow is on the cart. Got my voice is down low. And this guy just stops and goes, do you want a job? I'm a salesman. This is amazing. Your technique is flawless. Do you want a job? <laughs> I didn't sell him a heat pack. He didn't buy one. But in this moment, I was like outed as using this technique to get this sale to happen. I didn't respond in like a job, that was like a career path for me, although I wish it might have. But I thought about that in this space. And there were times where people would get like angry because they could tell what was happening. They're like, I'm not going to your cart. They're like, I know if I step towards your cart, they would drop it. They would leave it on the ground. They're like, no way, man. I'm not, doing, I'm not doing the game here. Sometimes when we talk about sharing our faith, it can maybe feel like that. Here's two simple questions that if you ask them and they 
open up and they're vulnerable or that you've kind of trapped them in their own logic. And I just think the heart of God is to meet people where they are and for you to actually not reflect techniques, but the actual heart of God, which is what I think this passage does for us. So I want to just set everybody at ease. I, I'm silly in that illustration, but I don't have a desire to give you techniques. Although I do think we should get better at asking open-ended questions. We should get better at actually hearing someone's story. We should slow down our lives just a little bit to actually be able to engage with people, but not primarily with techniques, but with the hope of Jesus. And if our desire is to share the hope of Jesus, then, then you've got all kinds of room to fumble in words and not have crisp answers and be asked things that you don't know what to do with because you actually genuinely care about this person. Even the very fact that the Bible tells us God himself took on flesh and came into our world, what theologians would call the incarnation. He, he took on flesh, communicates to us that God comes near into our world where we are. And so for people to go to those on the outside is to actually reflect the heart of God. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. To be a follower of Jesus, to love what he loves and do what he does and to trust what he teaches is to be someone who is open to and looking for and focused on those who are on the outside because that is the heart of God for all of humanity. To love what Jesus loves, to do what Jesus does, to trust what he teaches is to have an eye for and a heart for those who don't yet know Christ, which is where this passage kind of ends for us. So, so I don't know if you have an aversion to technique or if you've heard evangelism talks before. What I want to do in this passage is just highlight four things that Paul brings to the surface for us as we think about how to engage in the outside world. There's actually a ton here. You could preach lots and lots and lots of sermons out of this one passage. I'm promising myself not to try to preach more than just one this morning, but there's a ton in this text. I simply want to talk about four things, four ways you could engage with the outside world with the love of God, four ways that you could think about how to engage the people that are made in the image of God around you, four ways that you could reflect the heart of God to a world that desperately needs to hear the hope of Jesus. Here they are. To pray, pray steadfastly is the way the text says. To pursue holiness, to, to practice the gospel and proclaim the gospel. So, so four Ps, to pray, to pursue, to practice, and to proclaim. Look with me in verse 2 of chapter 4 in Colossians. He says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us uh, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make clear which is how I ought to speak. He starts in this section of engaging those who don't yet know Jesus, and he says, the first thing is simply to pray. When you pray, you're doing lots of things. There's a lot of things going on, but at least three things are true, or you're engaging with three realities. One, that you believe God exists. So even this idea of like praying with thanksgiving is to acknowledge that God is in the world, that he's ruling the world, that he cares about the world, so, so that God exists. Two, that he cares. Or, or why would you talk to him? So that, that he exists and that he cares. And three, that you need help. Prayer is a declaration that God exists, that he cares, and that you know you need help. So he says, as we think about engaging with people who don't yet know Jesus, start by praying. And he says there's kind of two kinds of prayer, and they're, they're wrapped and, and marked by thanksgiving, which gets us out of the headspace of guilt and shame for not praying enough. 
It gets us out of spaces where we feel like dutifully like we should always be doing more. To pray with thanksgiving just like gives us a deep breath in our lungs to acknowledge that God is a loving God, inviting his children to grow with him. When I even just say start praying or pray steadfastly, half the room just goes dark and goes, man, I can't. That's not me. I've tried and failed. So to pray with thanksgiving is to engage this loving God who's good and kind and gracious and generous towards you. So, so pray with thanksgiving. And he says two ways. One is just kind of a general prayer. He says pray continually being watchful. Just, just watch around you. Just watch the world and be thankful. And this word thank, thankfulness we've seen showed up several times in Colossians 3. He tells us to be thankful for, for everything that happens. So I'm getting from that space this idea of, of a general posture of prayer that's watching God at work in the world, that's acknowledging that He's real, He cares, and that you have needs regardless of what's in front of you. So to have this kind of posture, he says. And then there's a specialized kind of prayer, a prayer specifically for the open door of the gospel. Look in verse 3. He's, after he says, pray, pray, he says, at the same time, pray also for us. So here's this one kind of prayer, generally praying, just watching the world. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open us a door for us to share the word and declare the mystery of Christ. There's a prayer here that's specific for those who are sharing the good news of the gospel. So we should pray for people like the Georgifs who are in Greece, these missionaries who are working with refugees. We should pray for people that are in, in pulpits, people that are in street corners, people that are in, in homeless shelters, people that are in other countries, people that are in spaces where they're actively sharing the good news. You should pray there. But, but it actually involves all of us. If you go down into verse 6, he actually says that we also should be in a space where we're able to give an answer to people as they ask. So it's not just a prayer for those people to do that professional thing. Remember, Christianity is not bifurcated in this like supreme spiritual thing and then this secular common thing. It touches all of life. So we're not just saying, here's the professionals who are doing this. Those who follow Jesus are called to actually be in prayer, to be able to have open doors, to share. And it says here that they should give an answer to each person is the way this closes out in verse 6. So, so to start simply with prayer, to be in that space where, where we think about asking for God's help, opening up our eyes past the material world to the spiritual world. Prayer gets you out of the rut of the mundane, that everything is just what you can see and touch. Because when you stay there, you see people as commodities, people to be used. You see them as competition, people to kind of be resisted. You see them as somebody who actually maybe could comfort you or somebody who could add value to you, somebody that you could use in certain ways. And to stop and just pray for people is to acknowledge what's inside of them as those who are uh, image bearers in the first place. That just changes, I think, the conversation from the haves and have-nots or in and outside to those who actually all of us need, need Jesus and we get a chance to come close to them. So he just says, start with prayer. It's something we focus on as a church. Remember, it's one of those practices that we named earlier a couple of weeks ago in the series. It's why we have a prayer gathering on Wednesday. It's why we'll gather on the first Wednesday of the month. It's why we gather on Thursdays over the lunch. It's why we take time in our service to pray, to actually just stop and be a people that remember that God's real, that He cares, and that we need help. So, so point one, pray. Secondly, he says to pursue holiness. And maybe you're looking at this and you say, hey, I didn't see those words in there. Let me, let me take you back into verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it 
with thanksgiving. This word watchful is key. Of course it means to just look around you, but it also in the Greek has this sense of like wake up. Like have your eyes opened. Like, like think about what's happening. Come out of the soberness or this kind of like uh, sleepiness into a more sober state. To, to wake up is the way the word can be translated. And then in verse 5 he says to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. And if you're familiar with the Bible, maybe in your mind your, your heart kind of kept going to finish that sentence because the days are evil. Did anybody else do that? Make, make the most of this time because the days are evil. That's the way Ephesians finishes that verse. We've talked a couple times about the parallels between Colossians and Ephesians, both letters written to new uh, first century Christians who are wondering what it means to live out their faith. And what you see in that text is a call to wake up and a call to walk in wisdom because of the sinfulness of the world around us that not is just those people, but it's also inside of you. So, so maybe just flip over a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter 5. It's on page 978 if you're in that pew Bible. The themes of chapter 5 and 6 are really parallel to Colossians 3 and 4, which actually just gives us some hope, like hear the same things over and over again. Like we just need to be constantly reminded. It also means like though there is this beautiful depth we'll never fully understand, there's a handful of concepts and ideas that God wants us to wrap our minds around. You don't have to be exhaustive in your knowledge. There's this repeated things that keep coming up for us to embrace and engage with. So, so in chapter 5 of Ephesians, even this phrase to walk you'll see several times in that text but but start in verse 11 of chapter 5 in Ephesians okay I'm saying that Colossians says that we should pursue holiness this idea of watchfulness is to wake up and to be wise as we walk because the days are evil listen to this in verse 11 of chapter 5 of Ephesians take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them and he says that because we're tempted to to take part in that it it's how we've learned to live. It's how we built our identities. Right? Remember this identity in Christ? We stop and repent of ways we've also built our identity in other things. And he has this long list in Colossians. You'll see similar list in Ephesians. So he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that is visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. It's exactly what we see in Colossians. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what is the will of the Lord. And don't get drunk with wine, because that's debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And he's going to go on to give us this list of commands. When it comes to engaging in the outside world, it's not just content of a message that you have that you want to transfer. It's actually real hope, real hope for real change, which, which engages then our hearts to actually be changed. To pursue holiness is not an option for a follower of Jesus for tons of reasons. But in this text, we're mindful that because to not do that and to reflect a darkness with our lives while we use words that reflect light is incongruous to those around us. It, does, it doesn't fit. It doesn't have any integrity. It's not, it's not at all consistent. So he says, I want you to, to be watchful. I want you to wake up. When you think about the world around you and the people around you who desperately need Jesus, would you wake up to that? 
And then when you think about the stuff that the world promised to us that would soothe or would comfort or would help us build an identity, those things that are actually antagonistic to the kingdom of God, the things that you've grown up doing, that everything whispers for you to indulge in, to stop those things actually so that you can present something more than just your words, but with a life that actually offers some sort of hope. Holiness is like not an optional thing. It's all over this passage in Colossians chapter 3 to take off the things of the flesh and put on the things of the Spirit, right? To pursue a life that's actually being changed and transformed. And it's essential as you engage with those who don't know Jesus because you're not just promising them ideas. It's not a better philosophy to give assent to. It's real life change, which is what's compelling about your life as it's being changed. Even the habit of repentance where you blow it. So last couple of weeks we've been walking through like marriage and, and the world when it comes to, to race and social issues. One of the invitations in that is for us to be an honest people. To stop and just say, hey, we've blown this. We've, we've struggled here. Men have oppressed and misused their power. Our country has oppressed and, and misused its power. There were things that are in our history, even things the church affirmed that they should not have affirmed. And to have congruence is to say those things are outside the bounds and to repent of them so that's true on a systemic level but then when it comes to your own heart to stop and say hey friend I know you watched me lose my temper can I just tell you it's not who I'm trying to be it's not who Christ makes me to be please please forgive me I didn't show you very well what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus in fact I'm really struggling that space because for so long, anger is how I engage the world. And, and I'm being healed of that, but I'm not fully healed yet. To rescue and save those who could not save themselves. And we were dead in our sins and trespasses, alien from God, resistant to Him, even His enemies, the Scripture says. And for us then to repent is the turn to Him. That's the first move of the Gospel as we embrace it and receive it. So to continue to practice that is to proclaim the good news of the gospel. When you think about engaging the world around you, this text would have us open our eyes and wake up to what's real. The realest thing about people is not what's on the outside of them, but what's on the inside of them, that Jesus came to actually heal and redeem. And in that space, then even your repentance is a space where you're pursuing holiness. This idea of staying awake and, and, and kind of that being about resisting evil, we see a couple other places as well. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll talk about in just a few weeks as we get ready for Easter when we come to Good Friday. You'll see Jesus in the garden say to his followers, hey, would you stay awake with me and pray, he says. Pray and stay awake because there's evil coming, he says. And they struggle to stay awake. If you know the story, they, they keep falling asleep. And he keeps coming to them like, hey, wake up. Would you stay awake with me? There's a call to wake up, to have our eyes opened. And because of God's grace, it's not a shaming call. It's an invitation to what is most part of mind. Because the lies of sin are deceptive. They're, they're not real. And I know that they feel so like pornography kind of feels like intimacy. But you know that it's not. Soothing with alcohol kind of feels like getting over a hard thing, but, but it quickly comes back. Using anger to push people away so you feel safe is actually a destructive pattern. It feels powerful, but, but actually has no power to bring about lasting change. There is an illusion 
to the things that our world promises to us will actually make us whole and to just wake up to those. So that when we encounter people who don't know Jesus, it's not our ideas versus their ideas. It's transformation. It's, it's new life. It's liberation. It's healing. It's, it's actually holiness that Christ came to see us engage with, right? To actually be healed from the inside out. So pray steadfastly. Pursue holiness. And then number three, to practice the gospel. I get that from Verse 5, and we've kind of talked about this a little bit already, but he says to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. To actually practice the wisdom of the gospel. To practice an identity in Jesus. To practice repentance. To practice putting on the things of the Spirit. To practice the word and prayer and worship and community. To practice living out our faith in our most intimate relationships. To practice in our jobs and in society this transforming power of God. To actually practice those things and to walk in that way in the world makes the gospel compelling. It not just like proves it, but it helps people understand how it fits. How does it work? Is it practical? Would it make any difference? Would it make any real difference? And if all it is is coming to church for 90 minutes on a Sunday, I mean, come on. Not a whole lot of real difference to the rest of your life, but if it's about engaging with a real God who really knows you, who is transforming and healing and changing you, then walking in that actually has a ton of staying power. And Jesus says like in the, in the world, he's left his disciples so that they might actually understand the love of God. Jesus said, I didn't come to take my disciples out of the world, but to leave them in the world, and as they love each other, and as they, they walk in faithfulness, they're, they're demonstrating that Jesus is actually real, that he really was, really was God. So to walk with people, and, and to walk in wisdom is to walk again in congruence with the good news of the gospel, because the lies we believed, that they dehumanize, they shatter, they dilute, they actually strip us of dignity as humans, even though everybody is still trafficking in that until it explodes, we, we keep going and going and going, but, but it actually isn't congruent with how you're made. The realest thing in the universe is a God who created and sustains everything. And to live in congruence, as is true, is the way of flourishing. So to walk in wisdom is to practice the good news of the gospel. It's actually to make it relevant and real in, in life, and not, not that you have the power to make something true, but you're, you're living out its truth so that people can actually see that. The gospel is true whether you deny it or not. The gospel is true whether you live into it or not. You're not making it true, but you're showing its truth. This is an action word to, to walk this out in wisdom, right? To practice, again, all the layers of the gospel, not just the content of the gospel. I had a mentor in college who um, was an amazing dude. I mean, he loved people so, so well. He was really well-read. And I watched him countless times be able to connect with almost anybody about almost anything. So he knew something about your hometown. He knew about an author. He knew about a degree program. He knew something about the field of work that you were in. And it was fascinating for me to watch Jerry kind of ask questions and get to know people. He had given himself over to understanding things so he could help people see how the gospel practically engaged with where they were. Were they a stay-at-home mom? He, he had a way to help people understand the gospel is good news for that. Were you at the end of your life in retirement and facing some questions about your future? 
He had, a, he had a word. Were you just coming out of college and the world's in front of you? He had, he had a word. He had a way of engaging. Again, it was, I was fascinated by like factories and towns and authors and, and landmarks. It was amazing the way he would engage. But what he was trying to do was help people connect where they were with the good news of the gospel, which is what walking and wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. And everyone laughs. You've heard things like that before, right? So there's something about wisdom here. That's not just limited to facts and content. It's expressing it with your life. I really want to train us to think deeply. I have books up here if you want to talk about hard questions Christians need to answer. I'd love to give you resources. I think there are good answers to really hard questions. But if we traffic only in that or if we put our hope only in that, we'll miss the way this passage tells us to, to first practice the good news of the gospel, to, to be in spaces where we actually live out its truth in, in relationship. So that, that's verse 5. And then, of course, in verse 6, there's a proclamation of the gospel. It's not enough just to like walk around nice and loving. There's something about saying what this actually means for our life. So in verse 6, he says, And let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we have pray, we have pursue holiness, we have practice the gospel, and now proclaim the good news of the gospel. Let your speech always be gracious, which has something to do with kindness. There's ways you could read about that in verses 12 to 17 of Colossians 3 of how to engage people. But doesn't it also have at the baseline of it something that is rooted in grace? That words aren't just kind, they're, they're reflecting the grace of God. To, to be gracious in that space, truly, fully gracious, is to, to talk about the grace of God with those around you. To proclaim the good news of a gracious God who came into our world to welcome outsiders. And he says it should be seasoned with salt. And you go back to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 that we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. There's a way of inf infecting and impacting and influencing the world around us through the good news of what Christ has done. So again, about, about your life living out the grace, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Okay, that, that sentence is really overwhelming if it means you have to have an answer for every person's question about anything they wonder about God and the universe and the church and history and the past and the present and the future. I mean, if that's the case, like, man, we should just like, keep reading books and just sing some quiet songs in here and then go home. That's, over, that's overwhelming if that's what that means. But what if it actually means to connect with somebody with where they find themselves? And these other things influence how you do this. You're praying for them. You're letting actually the Spirit of God work in your heart and in their heart. You're living out a holy life that becomes compelling. You're practicing the logic and the wisdom of the gospel. What if the answers aren't just verbal answers? It has way more to do with that kind of lifestyle so that when you do open your mouth and give an explanation for what you believe and what you think and what a passage might say, it's not just your singular interpretation that's on the line. There's actually a context of truth and compelling ideas and moving them towards actually hope. To proclaim hope is more than just a handful of sentences, although it has to involve a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. To, to give an answer to the world around us is to say that God loves you. He came into the world to forgive you of your sin. He died in your place because he loves you. And he says to all who will believe in him, they can become 
children of God. That's the essence of the gospel. He's going to come again. He's going to make all things new. And he promises a way for those who, who would repent to actually be made whole and new. That's the answer that we try to give. And from that, then, we can answer the other hard questions. And I do think there are good answers. But, but Jesus even promises when you stand in front of somebody, like in a court or something like that, and they ask you questions, you're on trial don't be afraid. I will give you words to say in that moment, he says. So, so regardless of how deep you think this goes as far as how many answers you need to have, there's a promise Jesus gives his children that he's with them and he provides answers and information and helps them know how to actually engage with those around them, which takes a ton of pressure off. And especially those other three things are true. Even when you don't know, you can humbly just go, man, that's a great question. I actually have that same question. I, I don't know if I have a very good answer there, but man, I would love to pray about that. I'd love to ask some more questions. Would you be willing to pursue some answers around that with me? Like those kinds of responses, because it's not an either-or binary where there's good and bad and in and out in ways that actually someone is competing with you. You're actually inviting them into something more beautiful than even when you don't have an answer, you can invite them. Because remember, he says he's wanting to proclaim the mystery of Christ which is like a ton, right? There's a ton of mystery of who Jesus is and what he's actually done. When we think about other passages, there's this incomprehensible, this indescribable mystery of who Jesus is. I mean, to wrap your mind around a triune God, and one of the members of that trinity took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, came into our life, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary, vicariously sacrificial death, on a cross 2,000 years ago, like that is something that is fairly mysterious. That God simply spoke the world into existence. The reason why you have dignity is because He wants you to. That you're made in His image. All the things about creation that actually blow our mind come from Him. There is a ton of mystery, which gets us out of the temptation for simplistic answers and gets us into a place now where we can actually talk about the vastness of who Jesus is. To invite people to explore a God that we could never fully understand or comprehend not defeat their objections but invite them to something more and more beautiful something about that is the way I want us to live and the kind of community I want to be a part of that speaks and proclaims the good news of the gospel the content of the gospel that Christ died for sinners that apart from Christ you face eternal judgment and damnation and God loves you enough to come into our world to rescue and forgive you. If you're here in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, that is what we're answering. That is the answer that we have. It's Christ and Christ alone and his sacrifice on the cross to make a way for you to be forgiven and set free. So, so if that's the answer and this mystery is really broad, it's also helpful to stop and say when the Bible talks about the mystery of Christ, it's actually a technical term as well. There's a broad mystery, like a mind-blowing, you'll never fully understand an infinite God. We should just own that and say that there are things you don't have answers to, and that's okay. You shouldn't expect to actually have answers about all of who God is and what He's like. And if you had to, that would make you God. If you got to a space where you had to have answers for everything, if God answered to you all the things that you don't understand in that space, then you actually, I think, are in some sort of like superior position where He's on trial. The Bible does no concept of that. He's God of the universe and we answer to him. And this mystery of Christ, again, is a, is a technical phrase. It's, it's used in Ephesians to talk about not riddles as mysteries, but things that were previously concealed 
that have now been revealed. So if you want to go back to Ephesians again, it's to the left a little bit in that Bible. We're going to be in chapter 3 just for a second as we close. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 6, we see an explanation of what this mystery is. It says, pray for an open door that I might proclaim the mystery of Christ. Well, what what is that mystery? And it's so beautiful to see it technically defined here in verse 6 of Ephesians chapter 3. This mystery is that the Gentiles, which is those who weren't born Jews, who weren't born kind of in the family line of Abraham, that the Gentiles, those that were born on the outside, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone to welcome outsiders. The mystery that was hidden for days gone by is that, that God actually came for the Gentiles as well, not just those in the line of Abraham which I don't know and I don't want to presume in a room this size, but like most of us have Gentile descent. What this means now is the good news of the gospel, this mystery we're proclaiming is that God actually welcomes outsiders. You can become a fellow heir. You can actually come into the same body and be partakers of the same promise through Jesus Christ. So now we come full circle. The mystery of Christ that is being proclaimed is that there is hope. There's hope for those who are on the outside to be welcomed on the inside. That is the good news of the gospel. That's what we're called to engage in the world with. That's the message that people need to hear. The mystery of Christ is that there is a way for you who are on the outside, which is all of us in our sin, to be brought on the inside. And the way that happens is through the body and blood of Jesus on our behalf. So, so we take communion every week to celebrate that reality, to stop and to wake up and to remember and to Come awake again to the news that that God is the kind of God who rescued and saved us. We were on the outside and he brought us in. And it's a message to you who wonder if it's too late, if you've gone too far, if there's any hope for you or for, for your parents or for your children or for your coworkers or for your neighbors. The good news of the gospel, the message of Christ, the mystery of Christ is that he welcomes those who are on the outside in. And the way he did it was by dying in our place on the cross. So to practice the gospel now in this moment would be to receive communion and to rehearse the good news of how God made it possible for us to come on the inside. Would you bow your head with me for just a moment? If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to give you a second just to kind of catch your breath before you come and take communion. Communion is for those who trust Jesus. It's for those who say, I know I was on the outside and my only hope is to trust the sacrificial death of Christ on my behalf. You've done that. You've become his daughter or his son. And you're ready to rehearse that good news. Communion is for those who follow Jesus. If you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're here. What you've heard this morning is a rehearsal of the good news of the Christian message. It's that God loves you. That he came into the world to rescue and save you. That there's real hope for you because God really did die on a cross. He really did shed his blood. He really was buried. He really did rise again. He really is coming And he's made a way for you to actually be in relationship. That's the good news of the gospel. And I would love for you to consider that this morning. If you're not a follower of Christ, just stay in your seat while we take communion. There's no no religious pressure to come. And in fact, you should just stay in your seat. There's prayers on the worship guide that would give you examples of how to pray for faith. 
how to ask God to speak to you. So if you flip over that little bulletin there, you'll see some examples. So, so you pray from your seat. If you're a follower of Christ, come and take communion. And as you come, would you come being nourished by the good news that God came for outsiders? That was you. And receive that. Jesus, we come now in this moment. We ask for your help. Would you fill the room with faith and joy? Help us to engage with you. Thanks that you're the kind of God who came from the outside so that outsiders could be brought in. That you died in our place. You took the penalty for our sins so that we could actually be forgiven and free. Would you help us now live into that reality, even now in this moment, by faith, receiving again the good news of what you've done for us. So speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the way we take communion is we tear a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. Gluten-free is here in the middle, and then all these aisles have that. Come when you're ready.